Week, week one, uh, Ben did a great job of dispelling this marriage myth that you have to marry the right person. Or after you're married, you think, oh, I didn't marry the right person. That, that's a myth. The right person doesn't exist. Um, instead, you should be focusing on who you are, um, not on, on what the person is, is doing or bringing for you. And then last week, we, we talked, like we said, a lot about conceptual things. We talked about contract versus covenant ideas that you bring into marriage and how one versus the other can, can leave you in a good place or a bad place. Basically, in our series, what we're seeing is there's this gap between the ideal marriage that we dream of and the real marriage that we end up with. Um, sometimes our ideal isn't all that real. And so in this series, we're helping to refocus what is really ideal and, and how does God help us to, to make that more real. And today we're talking about the, the, this gap that exists between male and female. And to illustrate that, I'm going to read you a, a quick little thing here. This was on the internet. You've probably seen it. It's, it's basically a diary entry of a wife and then a diary entry of her husband, both on the same day. Here's, um, she starts it. Dear diary, tonight I thought my husband was acting weird. He, we had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. I was shopping with my friends all day long, so I thought he was upset at the fact I was a little bit late. But he made no comment on it. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said, nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that I had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. I can't explain his behavior. I don't know why he didn't say I love you too. When we got home, I felt as if I had completely lost him, as if he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. He sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. Fifteen minutes later, he came to bed too. But I, was st- I still felt that he was distracted, that his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep first, and I cried. I don't know what to do. I'm almost sure that his thoughts are with someone else. My life is a disaster. Okay, that was her journal. Here's his journal. (laughs) Motorcycle won't start. Can't figure out why. (laughs) Now, there are all sorts of differences between male and female, and I think those of us who are married understand that's it perfectly, right? Uh, We're... We think about things differently, and we, we're motivated by different things. In fact, if you go back 10 or 20 years, um, especially when the feminist movement was really getting strong, you can see that we've always been trying to figure out why are, these di- why are there differences between us. And for a while, people were actually saying there is no difference other than outward physical things. There is no difference between a man and a woman. And, and we had gotten to this big debate over nature versus nurture. You remember that one? Some people were saying, well, it's... The reason boys like G.I. Joes is because we tell them to like G.I. Joes. The reason why girls like Barbies is because we tell them to like Barbies. And so it's, it's all nurture, it's all the way we raise our kids that makes the big differences between male and female. Well, recent medical experiments, um, research has shown us that there's actually a wider gap between male and female than we ever thought. And it's not just the way we raise our kids, it's the way that we are built. It's the way that we're wired. 
And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown, and this is going to explain why men look at things so differently and why men just sit there and don't say anything and women need to talk. Um, with men, you can brag to the women that your brains are bigger. It's science. <laughs> um, you have a lot more gray matter, and, and the argument is... Um, you need more gray matter because you have a bigger body. Gray matter, you know, supports all, it, it tells your body what to do. Gray matter is also for thinking. Uh, men, we think more on the left side of our brain, and so we don't really tap into the creative side as much. It's, it's more isolated to the left side, which is why we like to solve one problem at a time. And if we can't solve one problem at a time, we're stuck. Men, um, the, the way that we're wired is that we find our identity more in what we do, not in who we know. So I identify with my vocation. If I can be successful in that, then I'm complete. That's who I am. They actually did this test. They put a group of men inside of a maze once, and they they told the the guys to, to find a way out. What happened was, immediately, they formed a chain of command, and they split up strategically so that they could find the exit as quickly as possible. Okay, women. You can brag about something, too. You have more white matter. White matter is what makes connections in your brain. So you can tell the men, look, you got a bigger brain, but at least I use mine. <laughs> the thing about women, though, that the connections are, are a lot different. I'm going to go ahead and put up this picture here. Men are on the top. Women are on the bottom. This is a scan of just the way that we make connections in our brains. You see men on the top left there. A lot of our connections go up and down. They stay on one side of the brain, and they go on the other side of the brain. They don't really make connections across. Women are different. Their connections go back and forth, left brain, right brain, right brain. It goes back and forth and back and forth that way. Women are much better at having this connectedness with everything around them. They can see the connection in things. And, and when they can't make a connection, that's when they start to get worried. They did this once. Um, they, they put a group of women in a maze and told them to find the way out. Do you know what the women did? They had a tea party. I'm kidding. They didn't have a tea party. What the women did was they stayed together as a group. It was not as efficient. It took them longer to find the exit, but they stayed together as a group because women value the relationship more than the answer to the problem. They found greater joy in growing together than they did finding the exit. And, and it's, it's not just the way that we were raised. This is how it's, it's imprinted in our mind. And so, okay, we're different. Okay, science is showing us that we're vastly different. I think that the good question is, why? Or how did we get to this point of being so different? And some of the people doing this, this research, they said, well, it took millions of years for this to, to get to the point it is today. You know, it took millions of years of, of whatever. I don't know if it's millions or thousands, whatever. You know, the way that we evolved, it took a long time to get this way. But one thing that one of those researchers said stuck out to me. This is our turning point here. The researchers looked at all this data, and they came to this conclusion. He said, it's amazing, amazing how male and female complement one another. And that statement stood out to me because he was on to something. It's amazing how male and female complement one another. And God gives us the reason why male and female complement each other so well. Thousands of years before this, these scans were even possible, God said, it's not, it's not going to be any surprise what you see here. This is no surprise. 
And here's why. When you look at Genesis chapter 2, it tells us exactly why things are the way they are. God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. A helper that is suitable for him. The cool thing about that word helper, it's used in the Old Testament, and the word is azer. It, it's, it's a word that God uses for himself. He is our helper. Not just one who comes in from time to time, okay, I'll help you finish this project, then you're on your own. A helper is someone who is the other half of a puzzle. You're not complete without them. And when when God saw Adam in the Garden of Eden, he's like, man, this guy can't even dress himself. He's naked. I got to put a woman in there with him. No. When God saw Adam, he knew it wasn't good because he needed a helper. Someone who could fill his gaps. And so that's the, why, that, that's the reason why he created male and female so differently. Now here's where we start to see some tension rise up in the way we actually interact with people in relationships or especially in marriage. Here's the question that I want you to think about for a little bit. Do you view the opposite sex as someone who fills the gap? Or do you view them as someone who creates a gap. Um, that, that's our first key point I want you to think about today. Do you view the opposite sex? Do you view them? Do you view him? Do you view her as someone who fills the gap like God says? Or do you find this to be someone who more creates a gap? And there's going to be some tension with this because even though God created it perfectly as a suitable helper, you know, both of them complement each other perfectly, you know, we have this thing called sin inside of us and it's going to work against that. So here's the trick. How do you go from creating gaps between man and woman to filling gaps between man and woman? We're going to look at a section from Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul is is a disciple of Jesus. He's describing to these Christians in Ephesus, he's describing for them what it takes to go from creating a gap to filling a gap. And and the first thing that we're going to see is this isn't just something for married people. This is something for all Christians to understand no matter what the gap is. And we jump into it right away. Ephesians 5 verse 21, this is what Paul is writing here. He says this. He says we need a new computer. He says this, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're going to spend a few minutes on this one. When you see that word submit, it is automatically offensive to you. And there's a reason for that. The word submit in our English language, the way we use it today, it's almost always used as a command. Submit is something I tell someone else to do. Submit. When you look at the way it's used in the Bible, it's not used as a command for other people. This is is a a huge thing to understand as, as we look at it. It's not a command for other people. Submit, the way the Bible uses it, submit is a decision I make for myself. I'm deciding to submit to someone else. And that's such an important distinction. I put it on your message notes there, in between there. Um, submission isn't something I demand from someone else. It's, it's something that I do, it's something I decide to do. Um, what is it, though? I, I, heard, I heard a phrase this way uh, once, and it, it makes a lot of sense. To submit means you leverage yourself for someone else. It, means you, it literally means you put yourself up under. 
You put yourself under someone. You leverage yourself, your time, your resources, your, en- your energy to help them get further faster. That's what it means to submit. You're using yourself as leverage to help them. So submission is something I decide. Submission is, is something that I use myself as leverage for them. Why would we do that? And, and it, it explains that too in verse 21. You do this out of reverence for Christ. Or as you look in the context of Ephesians 5, he's talking a lot about worship, about praising, about singing songs and psalms to each other. He's talking a lot about worship. And this word reverence can also be taken as worship. Submit to one another out of, out of worship for Christ. Okay, Matt, that doesn't help much either. You know, what does that mean to, to do this out of reverence for Christ? To worship simply means that you are repeating something that God has done. And, and a lot of times we do that in songs. You know, we tell about how great God is and what he's done for us. That's, that's worship. Another part of worship is the way we act. The way we act can be a form of worship. And, and here's the thing. When we look at submission, the, the, the first thing we need to remember is that this is something God did for you. God leveraged who he is to help you. He literally put himself up underneath you to put himself under your sin, to put himself under your death. And he leveraged his power, his ability to take care of it. He submitted to you. And now, Christian, as an act of worship to him, submit to one another. This is your act of worship. Submit to one another. And this is a command that applies to every single Christian out there. Submit to one another out of reverence, out of worship for Christ. Now, this is easy to do with people you see a couple hours each week. This is easy to do at work. Uh, but, but it can be a little bit trickier when, when you get into the actual family. How do you submit to one another? And, and before we go on, there's this key question that you have to ask if you really want to submit to one another. Mutual submission asks this. What can I do to help? Simple words. Hard to say. (laughs) Easy to say at work. You're paid to do it at work. Yeah, what can I do to help? You're paid to do that. It's hard to do in your house. I know this is hard to do because I've been trying it the last few weeks. I I figured if I'm going to ask people to do this, I better try it myself. So for the last last few weeks, unbeknownst to my wife, she just figured out in the first service, um, I've been trying this on her. What can I do to help? And you know what I I did at first? Before I would ask this question, I did a quick inventory. (laughs) No poopy diapers. No dishes. I don't think I forgot to do anything yesterday. Honey, what can I do to help? You know, I was just all proud of myself and, and happy about it. This is a tough question to ask. It's not just for husbands and wives. You know, kids can do this too. You're probably going to make your, your mom or dad pass out if you ask it. What can I do to help, mom? Oh, my goodness, right? They're just going to freak out, especially if, if you're a teen. Try it. I guarantee you it's hard. And as you try it, there's one thing you really need to be careful of. This is what I found in myself. You have to be careful of the pride that wants to ask this question. Your pride says, you need to ask this question because you know what they're going to say back to you? They're going to say, nothing. 
There's nothing you can do to help because you've already done everything. You're so perfect. <laughs> and that's what we want to hear, right? You have to be careful when you approach this question, if, when you approach this mutual submission, that you're actually doing it to submit, not to find some sort of self-worship. If it's for self-worship, then there's only one way to describe the motivation for this question, and that is ungodly. Ungodly. And I'm going to put a passage up here that um, Ben, I think he mentioned this in the first week. This is one of his key points. This is something we have to keep drilling into ourselves when we talk about relationships. You know, we're, we're talking about the help we need. We're talking about, you know, the way we mess it up. Here's what Paul said in Romans 5. While we were still helpless... The NIV says, while we were still powerless. They both mean the same thing. While we were still incomplete, lacking. That was the perfect time for Jesus to do what he decided to do. To die for the ungodly. You know, we turn submission into something that's a self-praise for us. And we have to defer that every time to him who submitted to the ungodly. While we were helpless. He became our helper. And, and this is a beautiful thing to put into practice for every Christian, and no matter what relationship you're talking about. You know, how can I submit? How can we work on this mutual submission? And you ask that, yourself that question, you know, try it out this week. It's okay. What can I do to help? The tricky thing is, what does that look like in a marriage? When, when husband and wife are constantly asking, what can I do to help, is it kind of like, oh, you decide what to do. Oh, no, you decide what to do. You go first. No, 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 you go first. Is this, is this an endless cycle of submission to one another and you never get anything done? And maybe Paul is starting to think, okay, husband and wife, this is going to be a very unique thing when you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's going to look unique in this marriage relationship. And so what he does is he breaks off the women and then he breaks off the men and he gives them both separate instructions. And here's why he does this. Women think differently than men. Why? God designed it that way. So he gives special instructions to women as, as to what it means for them to submit to one another in marriage. And then he gives special instructions to men, what it means to submit to one another in marriage. And as Paul goes on, um, this is where we're going to uh, finish up here with, with our section on this slide and the next one. Verse 22, it says, wives. And you're going to see the importance of this, men. You can't read this section. You have to cover your ears for a second. This is just for wives because this is catered to the way they think and the way they feel. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You're telling me I should submit to this guy and trust him as much as I submit to God and trust him? You don't know my husband. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Submit to him the way that you submit to God. Oh, that's just an outdated way. You know, the culture of the Bible days, things are different now. That was just an old way of thinking at things. Actually, no. It's not an old way of looking at things. Because when you look at what he says in 1 Timothy 2, Paul talks about the same concept. And the foundation for this isn't in the culture of Paul or the culture of Greece or Rome. This was set at creation. When God created man and then he created woman to be his helper. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
But what does that mean to submit to him? Is that like I'm a slave or something? No, here, here's, what, here's what it means to submit. To submit means that the husband has the authority to break a 50-50 vote. But wait, there's only two people in marriage. That's right. He has the authority to break the 50-50 vote. In just a minute, we're going to see the other side of this. But in a healthy relationship, when you're both following all these as's, as God, as Christ, you're not going to have any 50-50 votes. Uh, there will be maybe a couple where you find this thing, okay, we have two options in front of us, and you know, a couple has to figure out which way to go. Neither one is right or wrong. You've prayed over both of them. They're, they're both good options for you. Which way do we go? We, can't, we just can't see eye to eye on this. And so finally, at the end of the day, the wife says, your call. You decide. And men, if you're smart, what are you going to do? Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. You can, you can see Paul isn't, Paul isn't thinking linear, linearly here. He's not just talking about one point. He's connecting a lot of things, isn't he? Kind of like how women like to connect a lot of things. Submit to your, to your husband as to the Lord because remember who the Lord is? He's the head of the church. He's the, one who folk, he's the one who keeps track of all things. He's the one who, who blesses you. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And, and I got to think, as Paul was writing this down, this is, this, is, this is awesome. This is a reflection of the relationship that we have with God. This is awesome, the way that, that he describes this depth of love. But at the same time, he's probably thinking what we're thinking, and that is, guys are going to read this section. And they're going to see that last sentence there and they're going to go, oh yeah, okay, this is where we get all the power from. Guys, this is not for you. In fact, Paul recognizes what we're thinking and so he goes on and now he addresses men. Okay, guys, your, your gray matter has been sitting for a while. Let's engage it. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. What? You're saying I should love her with the same way, the same degree, to the same extent that Jesus loved me? That I should be ready to die for her? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You should love her as much as Christ loved the church, as much as he loved you. And he gave himself up for her to make her holy. Maybe you don't know my wife because she's not always all that lovable. In fact, especially in the morning, she's not lovely at all. <laughs> it takes a little time, okay? Yeah, I know. That's not the point. I'm not asking you to love something that's lovely. I'm asking you to love something, to love someone. And, and you notice what happens here? When, when, when Christ decides to love someone, he's not loving the lovely, he's not loving the, the lo- lovable, but when he loves, he makes it lovely. He makes it lovable. He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, reference to baptism there, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. And this is key here. When Christ loved you, it made you lovable because of what his love prompted him to do. His loving you made you lovable. And and husbands, on a smaller scale, you're going to see the same thing happen when you do this in your marriage. 
You're not going to save her. You're not her savior. You are her husband. And they, wrote, they, they write books about this stuff. I'll give it to you for free. They, they, they say, when you love your wife, she's going to become more lovely, more lovable, because here's what happens. When you love her, you're working with what God designed up here. She's looking for that connection. That's how she identifies herself. And when you love her, when you fill her up with that love, what's she going to do? She is going to want to help you more, to respect you more, to love you back even more. And when she helps you more, what does that do for you? It helps you to love her more because now she looks more lovely. And it's this cycle that, that keeps going around and around. And, and Paul summarizes it this way at the end here. He who loves his wife loves himself. And get this, this isn't the motivation for loving your wife. The motivation is what Christ did for us. But here's a byproduct. When you love her, it's like you're loving yourself. Because two have become one. And we talked about that last week. And husbands, as, as we look at our roles as you know, head and she's the helper, there, there has to be something to check our pride. Make sure our heads don't get too big. So here's a couple things to keep in mind. This is just for husbands out there, and, and if, if you're single, this is something to think about too. When she married you, she was making a statement that she was submitting herself to two men. Submitting herself to two men. The, the first one died for her on a cross, and the second one should be willing to do the same. Love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When you take on that role as head, it means that you are, are acknowledging this, this thing that God is asking you to do. And, and this, there's one other thing to keep in mind too. When you enter marriage, you might think, oh yeah, she's going to submit to me, it's all going to be good, it's, it's all going to be happy. When, when you enter that marriage, you, you're saying something deeper. You're acknowledging something deeper. That you are not the ultimate authority of her. Only God is. And unfortunately, so many people take this section from Ephesians chapter 5 and they just find the parts they want to hear. Yeah, submit to me. Yeah, give yourself for me. And it's, it's this selfish thing. That's why you've got to go back to the beginning. Submit to one another. Leverage yourself to each other as your worship to Christ who leveraged himself for you. And I want to wrap this up here today as, as, okay, we're looking at this practical application of how to submit to one another in marriage. Let, let's wrap this up by acknowledging again, once again, this difficulty. There is this, this gap between husband and wife because we're different. This is what you find in marriage. You find that there are certain situations where you're just thinking, why can't she be rational? Why can't he just see things the way I do? And you're going to go back and forth because you're two different people. And what you're going to try to do, you are going to try to get the upper hand on them so that they finally see this this rational things just solve everything, dear. Or, you know, why can't you just be more sensitive? And we're always going to try to, to fight for the upper hand. So here's one thing to think about. You're two different people. You know, which one should have the upper hand? Think about this. In your relationship with Christ, between you and him, Is it safe to say he has the upper hand? 
That's pretty safe to say, I, I think. He has the upper hand in this relationship. Now, what does that mean for him? For him, that means he has more to give. For him, that means that being in very nature God, he got to empty himself and take the very form of a servant. It meant for him that though he was number one, he became second place for you. And that's one thing to think about in your roles also, as head or as helper. Do I have the upper hand? In some issues and in some circumstances, you know, some are, are better for wife to figure out, some are better for husband. Which one has the better upper hand in this? Because if you do, then you're in the position to give more. Last fill-in for today, number three. The one with the upper hand has more to give. You see that reflected in God for you. And as you contemplate your, your place in any relationship, seek that. Um, finally, to close, the ideal marriage, the ideal marriage we're looking at isn't where husband and wife always see eye to eye. That's not what we're looking for. What we're looking for in the ideal marriage is, is a marriage where, where man and woman worship Christ together in mutual submission. With him as the head and with him filling every gap. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, as you spoke to, to us through your word today, we're reminded of the, the amazing love that you showed us in Christ. Though he is God, he emptied himself of, of all of his power so that he could be our savior just like us, so that he could leverage who he was for our benefit. Um, we ask you to help us to worship you every day with not just our words but our actions, that we would get to submit to one another out of reverence for him and out of worship for him. And we ask you a special blessing on all the, the married couples who are listening to this today, that, that you would remind them that, they, yes, they are created differently. And yes, sometimes because of our sinful nature, we'll, we'll use that, that uh, difference as an excuse for a gap. Help us to see, however, that the, the divine design in marriage between husband and wife, that you, you created this to fill a gap, and that in Christ, with, with your help and with your power, that gap is filled. Continue to bless all of our families and all of us as we submit to one another in Christ. We ask this blessing in his name as we also join in the prayer he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.